most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, July 17th, 2023, the 908th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderate. Now, I hope you all had a wonderful weekend. I want to start today where we left off on Friday, and that is in the realm of the absolutely ridiculous. On Friday, I read an article from the New York Post's gossip column, page six, about how two men at a Robert F. Kennedy Jr. press dinner got into an argument about whether or not climate change was a hoax. And in the midst of that argument, one of the arguers employed his own flatulence as a rhetorical weapon. So we have an RFK Jr. press dinner with the press attending, an argument about climate change being a hoax. And in the course of that argument, we are told there was a round of combative farting. And that was a very, very strange article. Now, who knows if there was actually combative farting at this dinner? It's impossible to say. I have a feeling that the media will not be devoting time and energy to getting to the bottom of this issue, no pun intended. And we're going to come back to that RFK Jr. dinner in just a second. But I don't want to leave the realm of the ridiculous just yet, because over the weekend, we got this absolutely insane headline from the New York Post. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen dined on psychedelic mushrooms in China. Report. What a trip. Magic mushrooms may have been to blame for Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's mortifying bow before a Chinese official last week. Yellen, 76, gobbled four portions of Jianshu King, a type of wild mushroom, when she dropped in at a casual Beijing restaurant soon after she arrived there on July 6th. 
Chinese state media reported in an effusive story that took care to praise the secretary's chopstick skills. So Chinese state media, the Global Times, state media at least as described by our global regime state media, they wrote a nice piece about Janet Yellen complimenting her chopstick skills, but also letting us know that she had far more of these mushrooms than one would normally expect. In fact, she took four portions of these mushrooms all for herself and just gobbled them. Yellen arrives in China. She heads straight to this restaurant and she eats a, a bunch of psychoactive mushrooms. Now, this is just a report from Chinese state media and she did use her chopsticks well, but we should believe the report because now it's in the New York Post. So sure, it was reported anonymously by Chinese state media, but now it's at least true enough to reprint. Now, is it possible that Janet Yellen was actually tripping on mushrooms throughout her visit to China and all of her meetings? Well, hey, anything's possible. So let's put it at maybe. But the chances that Janet Yellen was tripping out throughout all her meetings in China are very, very low. And this report of her eating mushrooms that a restaurant serves, but eating too many of them and then tripping out for what is suggested to be three days sounds extraordinarily unlikely. One way or another, this seems to be absolutely fake news. There's no sourcing to it. She was reported to be at a restaurant. She was reported to have eaten these things, and these things could potentially cause some sort of psychoactivity. Therefore, all of it is true. There were some comments from some other people about those mushrooms and what they could do. So therefore, all of it's true. It seems extraordinarily unlikely. And if this was reported about Donald Trump, there's no way any of us would believe it. So why would we believe it here? Now, assuming it's fake, why would this come out? What communication to the public could this possibly be? The Biden administration is a bunch of drug-addled degenerates. Well, yes, it's certainly possible that they're delivering that message to the public. We know about the cocaine in the White House. We know that Hunter is a drug addict. We know there were reports of marijuana at the White House a year ago. So that narrative is definitely out there. It's not exactly the return to decency that we were all told to expect. But it's also kind of just the communication that whatever Janet Yellen is doing is really, really suspicious. Perhaps she's on drugs saying all of these crazy things that she's saying. And she is saying some crazy things over the weekend. She said that the U.S. sending billions of dollars to Ukraine is the single best way to boost the global economy. And I guess it's possible that from the perspective of the global regime and the bankers behind it, that may actually be an accurate sentence. If they don't hold on to Ukraine, the entire thing implodes. And from their perspective, the global economy would be absolutely wrecked at that point. And maybe, just maybe, it's worth considering that the term global economy does not mean Every country on earth will be affected. It only means that the economy of the globalists would fall apart. You have to imagine that from their perspective, both of those are the exact same thing. Yellen also said over the weekend that she does not expect a recession in the United States. She also said that the U.S. can rest assured that the dollar is going to play the dominant role in international transactions. 
So is Janet Yellen on mushrooms? It's hard to tell, but we are absolutely getting a heaping portion, maybe four portions of ridiculous headlines that make this just about as hilarious a timeline as anyone can possibly imagine. If you've listened to this podcast for a long time or you're a fan of Badlands Media, you've probably heard me say before that I think during this awakening process for each person, we have a progression through different genres of movies. We start out with horror, and I suggested that last year I had made it all the way to black comedy. Well, now I think that I might have made it all the way to slapstick comedy, and potentially after this, the world may eventually reach rom-com, where Everyone falls in love and everything is just funny. And then there's a happy ending to the story. And I'm really hopeful to get there, I've got to say. But the comedy part is nice. It's fine. It's fun. Don't get me wrong. It's fun. And so leaving aside the Treasury Secretary tripping out on mushrooms, let's get back to the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. press dinner that featured combative farting. And you have to wonder why the combative farting aspect, that story, was the first story reported about this event. Over the weekend, video was released from that same dinner that has created far more interest and far more headlines than the story about the climate hoax fart battle. Here is what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said. We need to talk about bioweapons. The level I know a lot now about bioweapons because I've been doing a book on it for the past two and a half years and um, uh, and you know the, the, what we the technology that we now have to develop these micro we have we've put hundreds of millions of dollars into uh, ethnically targeted microbes the Chinese have done the same thing in fact COVID-19 there's an argument that it is ethnically targeted COVID-19 attacks certain races um, disproportionately the, uh, the, the, the races that are most immune to COVID-19 are because of the, of the structure of the, of, um, the genetic structure, of genetic differentials among different races of the, um, of the receptors, of the ACE2 receptor. Um, COVID-19 is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and and, uh, and uh, black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and, uh, and Chinese. And but not, we don't know whether it was deliberately targeted that or not, but there are papers out there that show the, you know, the, um, the racial and ethnic differential and of impact to that. We do know that the Chinese are spending hundreds of millions of dollars developing ethnic bioweapons, and we are developing ethnic bioweapons. That's where all those labs in the Ukraine are about. They're collecting Russian DNA. They're collecting Chinese DNA. So we can target people by race. Now, I apologize for the sound of that video. That is a video taken on a phone, leaked from a dinner, and there's absolutely no way that I am able to make that studio quality sound for this podcast. I get some feedback on that from time to time with some of these clips, but there's not a whole lot that can be done about that, just for the record. Now, to the substance of what he just said, everybody, of course, is focused on the part where he said that there is an argument that COVID was ethnically targeted after being created in the lab and the groups it was designed to spare 
are the Chinese and Ashkenazi Jews. Now, naturally, just talking about this at all means the entire conversation must be had using only no-no words. No one is allowed to have any part of this conversation, particularly not Robert F. Kennedy Jr., while he's running for president against the regime who inflicted the entire pandemic narrative upon us and tried to mandate the vaccines as a quote-unquote solution. Now, as you might imagine, the entire conversation focused only about whether or not what he said was somehow anti-Semitic. And so everyone decided we should just talk about that part for the next few days and ignore the rest, which is essentially the same as focusing on the combative farting rather than comments like this one. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. made it very clear at the end of that clip that many people didn't spend the time to listen to that claims of ethnic targeting with these deadly pathogens created in bio labs are exactly what the Russians accused the U.S. Department of Defense and their Ukrainian and regime partners of doing in those bioweapons labs in Ukraine. Those labs that Victoria Newland, the undersecretary of state, admitted were in Ukraine, funded by the DOD. You can choose not to believe anything that is coming from the Russian side, but whether you believe them or not, Russia brought the claims about these biolabs to the UN Security Council last year, saying that they have evidence recovered from those labs, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were in fact doing that research. And the specific accusation was that they were developing pathogens targeting Slavic ethnicities and then studying the migratory patterns of birds that travel over Russia so that they could send infection laden birds over Russia, infecting Russia with the deadly pathogen targeted at people of Slavic ethnicity. So that part's been largely ignored. People have become accustomed to the idea that this was all Chinese research in the Wuhan lab and blaming it on the Chinese seems like enough. And that, of course, takes the blame away from the Americans and the U.S. Department of Defense. But the situation is not that simple. And though we don't know all the answers and should expect that the story might have a few more twists and undoubtedly become more complicated, there are some things we do know. And one of the things that we do know is that at the beginning of COVID, we were told that COVID was worse on black people. I would guess that virtually everyone remembers that. And if you don't remember that, look up some headlines from that time in 2020, and I imagine it won't be hard to find. Now, putting out that news wouldn't be a big deal if the virus actually came from a bat in a cave in China. Because then it's just a natural occurrence. It's just the way that things are. It's sad, but it turns out this virus is worse on black people. Sorry, black people. We're going to mask up extra to prove that we're not racist. And there really were people doing that. That argument was being made. COVID is worse on black people. Therefore, if you refuse to mask, even though masks don't do anything, then you are racist because you are making it clear that you don't care about black people and black lives matter. Now let's get out there and riot. If that's a bat virus from a cave that just so happened to infect humans and then cause a global pandemic, 
Well, then it's no one's fault that the virus is racist. But if the virus, quote unquote, was created in a bioweapons lab and ethnic targeting is possible and the pathogen released by that lab by accident or maybe on purpose or hey, maybe everyone just got tricked. But let's just play in the face value domain right now. We have a pathogen created in a lab. We know that they can be ethnically targeted. And it just so happens that the pathogen in that lab that got released and caused a global pandemic was actually worse on certain ethnicities. Well, at that point, it's kind of inescapable that the pathogen might have been ethnically targeted here as well. Now, again, everything about that COVID narrative could be entirely wrong. It's possible that there's no pathogen whatsoever and everyone just got tricked, potentially poisoned in a different way. Who knows? We don't know. There are a lot of building blocks to get to these sorts of beliefs. And if we go back down through to get down to the foundation, down to the roots, we find that a lot of those building blocks really aren't there. They're not stable. You can't use them as a foundation for anything. So let's think about how this looks in the mind of a uniparty left villager who was a COVID superfan, very committed to the central narrative about COVID the entire time and still very committed to the central narrative about COVID. They fully believe that COVID was an extremely deadly virus, a global pandemic that could have killed everybody's grandmother if not for all of these mitigations. Now, not all of the mitigations were successful. They didn't all work, but that's mostly because a big portion of society would not agree to go along with the solutions. They just didn't care. They were conspiracy theorists. They thought they were being lied to. They didn't go along with the programs that extended the duration of the very deadly pandemic while everyone else was just trying to do their part to help knowing better safe than sorry. There are people with beliefs constructed all the way to that point. That is where the central narrative tried to lead everyone. The ultimate solution to everything is to trust the experts and follow the science. And if you break down the substance of all of those beliefs of the uniparty left villagers and COVID superfans, you will find an ongoing series of foundational misunderstandings. If you believe that the virus was natural and came from a bat in a Wuhan cave, then Robert F. Kennedy Jr. saying that COVID was a lab-created pathogen targeted at black and white people while sparing Ashkenazi Jews and the Chinese, you would think that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has lost his mind. And of course, that is what they think. That's the importance of these foundational misunderstandings as they're being inculcated in society by the media, by that propaganda network and protected and enforced by the censorship regime. Once you are able to lead people so far afield, it's impossible to get them to understand basic and obvious truths. It is a basic and obvious truth that the United States has Defense Department funded bio labs around the world. They say that they are doing dual use research of concern. They are doing research to protect us. They're creating pathogens so that they can create vaccines to respond to those pathogens, thus saving all our lives. Now, if those pathogens 
fall into the wrong hands, then sure, they could be bioweapons, but they're not bioweapons in our hearts when we're creating them, and therefore we're not creating bioweapons. Don't you get it? But that is what they are doing, and they admit they're doing that. And we know that pathogens can be altered, manipulated, targeted towards certain ethnicities. And then you begin to understand why the foundational belief that viruses are a natural occurrence in the world, and then they infect humans and cause global pandemics, is absolutely critical territory for them to hold. There is a reason why they have fought for this for so long, and it's because if this was created in the lab, then the science has no excuses. This was a scientific error of historical magnitude. It wouldn't matter at that point whether it was an intentional release of a bioweapon or if it was a lab leak. All that would matter is the science created this thing that nearly destroyed all of society. And if this is the amazing part, if we find disproportionate outcomes by race, that means according to their own understanding of things, as they have told it to us for years and years and years, that the disproportionate outcomes themselves are proof of racist intent by their own logic and understanding the science itself in this situation must have been racist. We've been told there were disproportionate outcomes. So unless we're going to continue on with that bat cave theory, it becomes pretty hard to dismiss what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said, which is why they're calling him anti-Semitic. And if you think all of that's crazy, isn't it strange how they told us when they began to roll out the vaccines that black people should be getting them first? We were told that this life-saving medicine was going to be given out to people of ethnic minorities first, even though the experimental quote-unquote vaccine had never really been tested on anybody we have to give it to the people of minority ethnicities first because they were experiencing disproportionate outcomes from this naturally occurring virus. The whole plan was pretty diabolical from a racial perspective, and it's not like this is just being discovered. I was making this exact point on this show at the end of 2020. And let's just take a moment and talk about how the narrative has advanced since then. Back then, I was making some strange point that no one could possibly believe. It was all a conspiracy theory. Society was telling us that we should want people of minority ethnicities to have first shot at the vaccines because they deserved it due to our history of oppression. They can be the test subjects now. That'll make it up to them. They've never gotten to be the test subjects before. Oh, wait. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they have. In fact, let's look at Wikipedia for just a second. This is the entry for Tuskegee syphilis study. The Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, informally referred to as the Tuskegee experiment or Tuskegee syphilis study, was a study conducted between 1932 and 1972 by the United States Public Health Service and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on a group of nearly 400 African-American men with syphilis. 
The purpose of the study was to observe the effects of the disease when untreated, though by the end of the study, medical advancements meant it was entirely treatable. The men were not informed of the nature of the experiment, and more than a 100 died as a result. So basically, the CDC gave black people syphilis on purpose, you know, just to study them. And people died. The Wikipedia entry notes this near the bottom of the article. In the period following World War II, the revelation of the Holocaust and related Nazi medical abuses brought about changes in international law. Western allies formulated the Nuremberg Code to protect the rights of research subjects. In 1964, the World Medical Association's Declaration of Helsinki specified that experiments involving human beings needed the informed consent of participants. In spite of these events, the protocols of the study were not reevaluated according to the new standards, even though whether or not the study should continue was reevaluated several times, including in 1969 by the CDC. U.S. government officials and medical professionals kept silent, and the study did not end until 1972, nearly three decades after the Nuremberg trials. So then you remember that the CDC, the science, would absolutely do something like that and target people of certain minority ethnicities. What Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said there was an argument for is absolutely a claim for which there is an argument. He's right. And once the foundational misunderstanding that COVID was a naturally occurring viral pandemic goes away, reaching the conclusion that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. reaches in that clip is unavoidable. Nearly all evidence, logic, and history point in that exact direction. It is a conspiracy theory to claim that that is a conspiracy theory. Claiming what RFK Jr. said is a conspiracy theory actually relies on a bunch of baseless claims for which there is no evidence, like the scientific community knows what they're talking about and always tells the truth. It's pretty clear that the first part of that isn't true, and there's absolutely no way that the second part is. We have them verifiably dead to rights on lying consistently, and that's just the beginning of it. This is why they always end up reverting to what you're saying is racist, because that, generally speaking, has the power to shut someone up, or at least it has in the past. That's why they use it when they've run out of everything rational. So somehow we got the story about combative farting rather than this story about RFK Jr.'s actual comments about COVID-19. These are, at minimum, controversial comments. Maybe they shouldn't be, and I would agree with that perspective, but nonetheless, they are in the current state of things. Did we get the combative farting story to get people's eyes on this dinner before the far more interesting story came out? Or... Was the farting story put out in order to configure this Robert F. Kennedy Jr. press dinner as a ridiculous comical farce in the minds of people reading it before anyone actually gets to the substantive and controversial comments that are far more important and that open up a conversation we really need to have and expose the effects of a whole bunch of foundational misunderstandings? Now, on Friday, we were talking about a specific foundational misunderstanding, the idea that our elections are free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results accurately reflect the will and intent of American voters. I talked about how that foundational misunderstanding can affect beliefs that we hold that 
at first glance have nothing to do with the results of our elections. There are a lot of sociological views we hold about black Americans because we are told that black Americans align with the Democrat Party at a rate of something like 95 percent. And that political alignment is proof that the Democrat Party is not racist, despite its past as the racist party. And then once the Democrat Party has been redefined as the anti-racist party, it makes complete and total sense that black Americans would align politically with the Democrat Party at a rate of 95%. Black Americans vote Democrat 95% of the time because the Democrat Party is not racist. And the Democrat Party is not racist because black Americans vote 95% for the Democrat Party. It's circular logic, but people assume it must be true because everybody knows that it must be true. But the entire thing falls apart if the election results aren't free and fair, aren't safe and secure, and the results, as reported, do not reflect the will and intent of the American people. It falls apart if the exit polling doesn't represent the demographic breakdown of the elections, which itself can't matter if the reported results don't accurately reflect the will and intent of American voters, and we have no reason to believe that they do. And that's not the only problem we have with the reported election results. We got into this a bit over the weekend. Devolution Power Hour from Saturday night is something I would highly recommend if you have the time. But we discussed what the population of this country actually is. According to the Census Bureau's estimates right now, there are about 335 million people in this country. I noted that for over 20 years, we have been told the number of illegal aliens in the United States of America is 11 million. And at the same time, we're told that native born Americans are waiting longer to have children and having fewer children. How is our population growing so quickly while Americans are having fewer children than before? And how does our population of illegal aliens just hover at 11 million, even though we have millions and millions crossing over each and every year. Now, it's fairly common knowledge, and you could find it with a quick internet search. There have been tons of problems with the U.S. Census. The U.S. Census is how they allot congressional representatives and assign electoral college votes and appropriate funds. So the census is important. The outcome of the census matters to a variety of government special interests. And so there's ample incentive to game and rig that system, just like there is in elections. And of course they do that. And the census itself is not accurate and really cannot be accurate. But there are other problems as well. In the census, they count illegal aliens in the country because their claim is that the Constitution does not say that the people counted must be legal U.S. citizens. And if you think back to the time when the Constitution was written, there is at least ample reason to believe they have a point. But it is, in fact, the policy of the census to include illegal aliens. And there's been extensive debate about this reported in the public. Here's an article from 2021, February 15th, NPR. 
immigration hardliner reveals 40-year bid behind Trump's census obsession. And I just want to share the first little bit of this just to center your minds on the issue here. Even before taking office, former President Donald Trump's administration obsessed over the U.S. census. From a failed bid for a citizenship question to a presidential memo about unauthorized immigrants that was fast-tracked to the Supreme Court, its moves over the past four years followed a playbook first drawn up more than four decades ago by the Federation for American Immigration Reform. People do not want illegal aliens counted as part of the census because the census dictates how we allot congressional seats and electoral college votes and how we appropriate federal funds. That is an entirely sensible position. There is nothing about that position that is racist. And beyond how intuitive that position might be, there's a functional necessity as well. The system in place right now actually incentivizes states to import more illegal aliens in the lead up to a U.S. census so that they can accumulate more power for their states. The expansion of the federal government and the shift in power toward the federal government have incentivized states to bring in more illegal aliens. That is not a great situation. It is a foundational misunderstanding to say that the census is accurate and then to base other assumptions, beliefs, and ideas on the understanding that the census's reported number of 335 million people in this country, not citizens, people in this country, is wrong. And not only is that assumption wrong, people don't even understand the substance of the assumption or what it means. But think about another angle here. We were told that there were about 158 plus million votes. Joe Biden, we're told, had about 81.2 million, Trump about 74.2 million, and there were a few million spread across other candidates. It's funny, if you look on CNN, all of their results still say estimated 99% reported in. Strange how it's been almost three years and they're not to 100% yet. But 158 million votes, a full 20% increase over 2016. How did it happen? How could we get a number that large? 158 million. Well, we know there are a whole lot of people who are ineligible. Everyone under 18 is ineligible. You can just wipe them right out. And speaking of wiping out entire populations, Kamala Harris hinted at it over the weekend. When we invest in clean energy and electric vehicles and reduce population, more of our children can breathe clean air and drink clean water. Ah, she just slipped up. She meant pollution. Of course she meant pollution. She had to mean pollution. She would have never meant reduce population, even though that is the stated express intent of the people who created the regime she is helping to enact. So sure, she means that, but the point is she meant to say the other thing. But back to the subject, we're just saying people under 18 are not allowed to vote. So how big a portion of our population is under 18? Well, according to the U.S. Census, it's about 22% of the country. So if we go by the other census numbers and assume that there's 330 million citizens in the country, well, then that's almost 70 million people who aren't eligible. And then we have, hey, only 11 million immigrants again. So we have about 250 million, 
total eligible voters. We've accounted for under 18s. We've accounted for all of the 11 million illegal aliens. And I'm sure there's an accounting out there of all the felons and other people who are otherwise ineligible to vote. But we're just having a conversation about the working principles. Ballpark numbers are just fine here. With 250 million eligible voters, we can imagine that 158 million real lawful American voters went out to the polls and cast a vote, or at least dropped some form of mail-in ballot into some random drop box paid for by Mark Zuckerberg. But we can kind of imagine it. Things just make sense with that picture. It's how we've always known it. The population goes up by a little. Sometimes it goes up by a lot. And it just keeps going up and up and up and up, no matter how many Americans stop having babies. And because it's so high and because we're used to hearing 300 million, 330 million Americans, they always say that, despite that the measurement is literally people in America, regardless of whether or not they are Americans. We just get used to these numbers, even though they are astronomical, we just assume that they are real. But what if we are wrong in our perception of how many Americans there are in this country? Well, that would be a foundational misunderstanding. And the truth is we really have no way of checking. We generally just take the census number as is and subtract from that the number of illegal aliens we're told there are. And then we start basing all sorts of things off of those statistics and that data as if the explanation, this was the best we could produce with the best of intentions, somehow excuses the fact that we know the data is not correct, as if the level of falsehood somehow falls within the bounds of what's acceptable. Like, no, the number's not right, but it can't be that wrong. And you say, wait, why not? Why can't it be that wrong? What's the answer? Because they're trying hard? Well, they tried hard, so we know it can't be that wrong. This is their best effort, and this is as close as we're ever going to get to knowing the answer here. But then you remember there's absolutely no reason to give them the benefit of the doubt because people like this lie to us about statistics all the time, first of all. But beyond that, They're specifically incentivized to lie to us about those numbers in this instance and every instance that intersects these numbers. Now, is the number knowable? The answer is certainly yes, but not by us. There is no way with the means and the information at our disposal to nail that number down. But despite that, we consider that the census number is the best we can get. So then we make that our default. And while knowing it's inaccurate, we treat it as if it's accurate enough to use as a basis to inform the rest of our understanding about a great number of issues that affect our lives in important ways. And that's absolutely insane. Could they be off in the number of illegal aliens by 10 million, by 20 million, by 50 million, by more than 50 million? Yes, They absolutely could. And there's no reason to believe that they aren't. It was the same thing in the elections. People say Joe Biden won by 7 million votes. Are you saying that there were 7 million fraudulent votes? There's no way that could have happened. Maybe people had a little bit of fraud here and there, but not 7 million, not enough to change the results of the election. And you say, well, wait a second. 
we go by an electoral college map, not the popular vote. So the difference there doesn't matter, particularly when most of it comes from California. Let's focus on the closest battleground states. And then it's a much smaller number. But they still say that election fraud can't happen at that level either. The problem is, though, you're already into a totally false conversation that assumes that the default numbers must be true and that the default understanding of the magnitude of election fraud must be true. It's impossible to commit election fraud to a certain amount. That's what they think. Election fraud exists. We know it's out there on some level, but it can't be enough to change outcomes or to skew the population's understanding of itself. If Joe Biden received 7 million more votes than Donald Trump, then people are inclined to think that even if there was some substantial fraud that could have overturned things in a few states, the country still wanted Biden. It's just such a majority. And it's like, hey, dummy, one, those aren't the rules. Two, you have absolutely no justification for saying the thing that you're saying believing that you know the bounds of election fraud potential. And three, you're still defaulting to a number that you admit you know must be fraudulent. You are literally starting with a number you know to be false, and then you are determining on no basis whatsoever that the number couldn't have been false by that much. But all you have to do is check into the election system a little bit to understand they absolutely could create fraud at an enormous magnitude. They know that they are dealing with a population who by and large will not check. And that was proven in the years since November 2020 because a lot of people didn't check. They just watched the TV and trusted the TV. They went to their default understanding about our population, their default understanding about our demographics, their default understanding about how elections work. None of these things they have thought about at all. All of these beliefs based on foundational misunderstandings. And then because it was difficult subject matter, their brains shut down. And here we find ourselves. People are totally unable to grapple with the idea that the world just simply is not how they've understood it to be. And when you have any of these discussions, how is it that people react? Well, they think your view must be crazy because you are upsetting their worldview in a significant way. In order to make the claim that you're making, you have to have overwhelming evidence that they are wrong and give them an answer to replace their wrongness with that they can support with overwhelming evidence. But that isn't possible most of the time. Maybe there are examples where it would be, but the truth is they will just change their standards of proof for as long as it takes them to get you to shut up or until they get mad and end the conversation. But what they're not going to do is let go of their foundational misunderstanding because too many things are dependent on that foundational misunderstanding. And if they allow that to go away, then their entire worldview is subject to change. That's a very uncomfortable position for people to be in. People don't like it when you tell them that they are wrong about something very, very important and then can't replace that piece of information with something else that they then determine is going to be more useful for them. 
And a lot of the times we fall into that trap of theirs when making this argument. We don't actually have to know what the right answer is to know their answer is wrong, potentially significantly wrong, and that they're basing all sorts of things on this foundational misunderstanding, their wrong answer that they cannot support. They'll say, what's the real answer? And rather than being honest and saying, well, there's no way to know for sure, we'll propose a number that we think is close, and then they will begin making the same attacks on our number that we made on theirs. And we find ourselves in the exact same position they're in. They're defending a number they know to be at least somewhat false. Why would we come back and do the same thing? We need to remember that we don't know these answers. We can certainly engage in discussions about hypotheticals. If the population is this, then what? But we don't know the answers. And the solution is to make sure we don't have any beliefs we're fighting for that are based on these things when the answers for us aren't possible. Based on our means and our information, we can't get the answer to the question. But that doesn't make it rational to revert to the default answer as handed down by the authoritative source. We have default explanations for everything. And those default explanations become our foundational misunderstandings. They're the things that we assume everybody knows. And so we ourselves don't check. A lot of the time we have no real way of checking, which is why we hope that occasionally people in positions to know things will honestly, truthfully, in good faith, share their knowledge with us. And I bring this up because there's a claim that Trump has made a bunch of times now in various rally speeches and in interviews and other settings. But he made a couple of times this weekend, one with Maria Bartiromo yesterday, and he repeated it again in his conversation with Lou Dobbs on Lou Dobbs's podcast this morning. Here's what he said on Maria Bartiromo. As far as I'm concerned, I consider it a badge of honor to be indicted. I would consider a badge because I'm doing it for the country and I'm doing it for the people. With all due respect, even, you know, your supporters say the only people who could take down Trump is Trump because the, he gives his detractors leverage on a civil okay, platter. Let me ask you this. What am I going to do? I get indicted on something that is ridiculous. I have to fight. Supposing I answered your question with tears pouring down my eyes and saying, oh, Maria, it's so sad. Look, I'm fighting for... I think 225, 250 million people. I think that's the real number, okay? I'm fighting for a lot of people. That's much more important than me. Now, a lot of people have suggested that maybe Trump is hinting that's how many votes he got. I don't think that that's what he's saying at all. I think he's talking about how he's fighting for every American man, woman, and child. He's not just talking about MAGA and the people who support him. He's talking about all Americans. And it's worth mentioning, by the way, that if he does his job successfully, and I believe he is doing that job successfully in a year or so from now, certainly I believe by mid 2025, two years from now, we will see the vast, vast majority of Americans publicly supporting Donald Trump because he's fighting for all of them and not just fighting for establishment Republicans or his base. And he takes that seriously. 
And he's saying 225 to 250 million people. I think that's the real number. Well, real number of what? Now, I wish that Maria Bartiromo or Lou Dobbs or someone, when he says this, would ask him. A lot of people default to the understanding that Donald Trump is loose with his language. And so when he says things that seem like they might be coming out of nowhere, people just, I guess, expect it and don't check him on that. I want to know what he means with that number, because I think he means the total population of American citizens. That would indicate a far lower population than we've been led to believe. Now, would that mean that there are somewhere between 85 and 110 million illegal aliens? No, it wouldn't mean that because we don't know that that top line census number is true. But if we assumed for a second that the top line census number of 335 million was true, then if Trump's saying the correct number and it's somewhere between 225 and 250 million people, then that would be 85 to 100 million illegal aliens. But regardless of the number of illegal aliens, let's say that the number of total Americans is accurately reflected in Donald Trump's comments. If we accept the census's percentage of under 18s at around 22%, then we have somewhere between about 180 million to 195 million eligible American voters. And all of a sudden, 158 plus million votes cast in the 2020 election begins to sound really difficult. All of a sudden, that number Trump's talking about, well, that becomes kind of important. And if you were discussing all of this with a standard issue villager, this would begin to cause them a lot of problems. They wouldn't know how to think through this whole thing. It just feels wrong to them. They don't want it to be right. Therefore, it must be wrong. And why is it wrong? Well, if you asked them, they would tell you that Donald Trump is just shooting his mouth off because everybody knows that's what Donald Trump does. That's just the default position as told to us by the television that people by and large have accepted and not thought through. And as we've discussed before, that is that same foundational misunderstanding of who Donald Trump is and what he represents. But they'll default to it in order to explain something that they can't explain otherwise that they know must be explained. They have to have an answer for why Donald Trump is wrong about the population statistics and they can't go to the census because that argument makes no sense. So they have to fall back on a character attack against Donald Trump because otherwise all of their beliefs based on this set of foundational misunderstandings would fall apart immediately. Now, the reason why I wanted to spend so much time on this today is because I really think we have to get super conscious of the times when we revert to a default explanation for the thing that we don't know. We have seen examples over and over and over and over and over constantly, especially over the last three or so years of our prior understandings being completely obliterated. But for some reason, we still have this tendency to cling to the ones that haven't been all of these default understandings, these things that we assume must be true, the things that we revert to because they're our best explanation, even though we know that they're not entirely accurate. It seems like we have to hold on to them because without them, then we don't have any explanation at all. And that's what makes us more uncomfortable than anything. 
But the problem is obvious. Holding on to those potentially incorrect default explanations because we think we need them and we think that they must be at least close to true means that we confine ourselves to the bounds of the implications of all of those default explanations as they become foundational for other beliefs. Like, for example, we talked about the article in the Post earlier. Janet Yellen goes to China. Upon arriving in China, she goes to a restaurant. At that restaurant, she eats four portions of mushrooms that are reported to be potentially psychoactive. And then a few people who weren't there tell us what it's like if you eat too many of those mushrooms. And we are led to believe that Janet Yellen was tripping on shrooms throughout her meetings in China. And we talk about how that story might be fake at some level because we know there's fake news. We know that there's not a reliable source there, but we still have the instinct to assume that Janet Yellen went to that restaurant and ate mushrooms because we know the news is fake in certain ways, but they don't just make up stories except. Yeah, they actually do. And in that New York post story, they told you that their source was Chinese state media. None of that story has to be true at all. Our old default position was that the media by and large is telling the truth. And we've given that away largely, but we still have this default understanding that the media is reporting on actual stories, no matter how many times we've seen them not do that. And so we default to the idea that they are just doing the best they can with the resources they have in good faith. But there's no proof of that either. We have a tendency to accept foundational misunderstandings when the content of that foundational misunderstanding is believed to be some sort of default position that everybody knows, because at least then if we're wrong, everybody else is wrong in the same way. And we think that that is an acceptable place to be, but it isn't. Not if your goal is to speak honestly about what you know and don't know, and if your goal is to figure out what's actually happening. Now, again, I can point this out and notice this and encourage us to all be better without actually thinking myself perfect at this, and I certainly am not. When I recognize myself resorting to default explanations, I try in real time as much as possible to reconsider those explanations. Sometimes I end up giving them considerable thought and seeing if they even make sense at all. And it's an important process to engage in because if we don't, and that default explanation ends up pushing us to a bunch of different positions that end up being entirely inconsistent with one another, then we know we're making a mistake somewhere. And if we're not willing to go back and check those foundational misunderstandings, those default explanations that we have accepted without reason from authority, then we're going to continue making a lot of mistakes. Now, let's think about this in the context of this story. This is the New York Post yesterday. One time guest on Jeffrey Epstein's pedophile island donates nearly $700,000 to Biden campaign fund. A joint fundraising committee raising dollars for President Biden's reelection effort received a large donation from a tech billionaire revealed to have once traveled to pedophile Jeffrey Epstein's private island in the Caribbean. 
LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman dumped $699,600 into the Biden Victory Fund war chest, a joint fundraising committee authorized by the Biden campaign in April. Federal election records show. So the source for this donation information is federal elections records. The donation came one week before the Wall Street Journal reported Hoffman had visited the late serial sexual predators U.S. Virgin Islands compound in 2014. The close timing of the donation and the article was first reported by Fox News on Sunday. Hoffman, 55, had reportedly planned on returning to the island with Epstein later in 2014 before traveling to Boston to raise funds for MIT on behalf of fellow island trip attendee Joy Ito, then a Media Lab director at the Institute. Ito confirmed to the journal that Reed attended a few fundraising events at my request, this is a quote, including one trip to Little St. James. Hoffman told the paper that he had relied on MIT's endorsement of Epstein, but ultimately made the mistake, adding he was sorry for his personal misjudgment. And we've been over this story in the Wall Street Journal's reporting on it. This was after Epstein had already been convicted. People were still visiting him. It was all okay because it was for the science and for the money. Not just for the pedophile island experience, there were good reasons like science and money. Now, LinkedIn is a very large, powerful organization with tons and tons of people's data. And we've talked before about how there seems to be a relationship between Epstein and the people around him and the project of the great algorithm and AI in the clouds, the place where all of that data everyone's personal information, their location, the things that they're saying and who they're saying them to, where they are spending money, what their political beliefs are, what their religious beliefs are, everyone they've ever known, all of that data, where that data goes and gets centralized and then analyzed and then used to manipulate the population. There seems to be some interconnectivity with that project and with the people swirling around good old Jeffrey Epstein. You got Bill Gates, you got Larry Page, you got Reed Hoffman. So right about the time that Reed Hoffman is being reported by the Wall Street Journal to have visited Epstein Island and gone other places and had business ties with Jeffrey Epstein, Reed Hoffman donates nearly $700,000 to the reelection campaign of Joe Biden. But that's not all Reed Hoffman's money has been spent on recently. Reed Hoffman funded the lawsuit by E. Jean Carroll going after Donald Trump for sexual assault and defamation. He was also rumored to have been funding or having considered funding Ron DeSantis's campaign. Now, the surface value explanation of all of this is that Reed Hoffman is massively anti-Trump. He is a major player in the regime. He is compromised. He is corrupted Almost certainly, if he's been down to Pedophile Island with Jeffrey Epstein after Jeffrey Epstein was already a convicted pedophile. So that face value interpretation does make sense. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's no way that face value interpretation is true. Reed Hoffman is the sort of person, based on what we know, 
who would be adamantly opposed to Donald Trump ever serving again as president. He's the sort of person who would be most threatened by more of President Trump. But what if we're missing something here? Because this is a little strange, to be honest. We have the richest people in the world, the members of the regime, able to push their money wherever they need it. They can launder it through Act Blue. They can send it over to various foundations who will then funnel it through into dark money groups who then reassign that money wherever they need it. Joe Biden does not need $700,000 donated in the most obvious and reportable ways by Reed Hoffman. Reed Hoffman is at the level where his money can just be moved around however it needs to be moved around and end up at the proper place. But we are told he's pushing his money toward these entirely obvious destinations and obvious in the sense that these are going to cause problems for the regime. Reed Hoffman, member of the regime, is making these public donations that get reported and make not only him look bad, but the people he's donating to look bad. How does something like that happen in this age of constant information where we can dig deeply into someone's past and their affiliations and where people have really started to care? How does someone go about their business this way? And people have explanations. They will say, well, this is just a public shaming by the regime. They do it in our faces because they know we're not going to do anything about it. Well, hey, maybe they're just brazen. They know no one can stop them. Hey, maybe. But what if there's something else there and we're missing that other thing because we default to these sorts of explanations? They have some amount of explanatory value. There's not another ready-made explanation there. So we assume that this must be it. Maybe it's not it, but it's the best explanation we have. So we're going to assume that this is it. And we're going to use that explanation every time this question comes up. And I am suggesting that we might be wrong in doing that. I have been saying since the announcement of Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter that I don't believe it's possible for the greatest information weapon in the history of of mankind to be sold by billionaires for the sum of $44 billion. Elon Musk himself has called Twitter priceless. What are we to think that he meant by that? The richest and most powerful people in the world, representatives, full-fledged members of that global regime are not going to give up the greatest information weapon in the history of the world so that they can split $44 billion among them rather than continuing to control societies covering every part of the map. There is no way they would do that. And that's when people would pipe in and say that Elon is one of them. But I don't think that that's very likely. And I'm not sure that really conflicts with my point. Regardless, I've said many times that I think Twitter was taken from those people, seized from them, if you will, and that Elon Musk is just the public face of that operation. And I believe a similar model is being used across the board. In that Twitter deal, you had money from people like Saudi Arabia's Prince Al-Walid bin Talal in the deal before Twitter was sold and still in the deal after. How does that work? I've said before that I believe that what we're seeing is a series of these seizures 
and then the rollout of public narratives in order to explain what has happened. I think a similar model explains why Bud Light and Target are becoming so preposterously woke that their brands would have to end. Do they really have woke executives making these decisions and then implementing them and then costing these companies billions and billions and billions of dollars? It could be correct. It also could be that all of these regime-linked institutions and people are being taken down and we need a public story as to why that is. And I know that a lot of people will probably recoil from this explanation immediately. They think there's not enough there. And I get it. I understand. I am not proposing that this idea become a new foundational understanding for you, a new default explanation, something that you base other ideas off of. I don't want you to do that. And I try not to do that myself. But it's worth keeping in mind because it's entirely possible that this actually has more explanatory value about what we see happening in the world than Reed Hoffman just hates Trump that much and companies really are this woke and stupid because it's not just a few people or a few companies at this point. We are seeing some of the world's most powerful and wealthy people as the subjects of massive shame campaigns online as we're being told stories about where their money is going. And it's not just Bud Light and Target and a few of the other companies that have been in the headlines recently. There are entire industries failing, like Hollywood. We hear about layoffs all the time at the tech companies. Threads is widely reported to be a disaster, though if if you say that on Facebook, you'll get fact-checked and they'll tell you there's actually 100 million subscribers to Threads. It's been nothing but a massive success. We were told that the metaverse was going to be the new thing. That's why they changed it over to meta. But that project has kind of failed. And so you have to wonder at some point, which one better explains what's actually going on right now? Because unless we're going to heavily bias toward the more default understanding of what's happening here, then we have to consider that it might be something entirely different and unexpected. Because otherwise, we have to consider the further implications of the default understanding. And we would have to accept that one of the world's wealthiest and most powerful tech entrepreneurs couldn't figure out an undercover way to get Joe Biden's campaign $699,600. And he couldn't figure out a way to keep his fingerprints off money to E. Jean Carroll. And he either donated to Ron DeSantis, or he was at least rumored to have, Now, might it be as simple as he hates Trump and doesn't care because he thinks he's untouchable? Yep, it could be that simple, but it also might not be. And if we rely only on that explanation and assume that that explanation is enough and we bias toward that because it is our default explanation and forego considering other explanations, then we might be missing big patterns that could be our key to understanding what's really going on. And when we realize that so many of our prior understandings have been absolutely obliterated over the last few years, it's important to get away from the defaults and what we think everyone knows. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. 
If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!